Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, military historian and L.A. Times columnist Max Boot speaks on how revolutions in military affairs shape history, recorded before a live audience as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Invoking themes from his latest book, War Made New, Technology, Warfare, and the Course of History, 1500 to Today, Boot discusses how innovations in weaponry and tactics have not only transformed how wars are fought and won, but also have guided the course of human events, from the formation of the first modern states 500 years ago to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the coming of Al-Qaeda. Max Boot is a senior fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. He is a weekly foreign affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times and a contributing editor to the Weekly Standard. He spent eight years as a writer and editor at the Wall Street Journal. Boot's previous book, The Savage Wars of Peace, Small Wars and the Rise of American Power, was selected as one of the best books of 2002 by the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. Here is Max Boot. Well, what I'm here to talk about tonight is revolutions in military affairs, these major upheavals that occur when you have new technology combining with new organizational structures, new doctrines, new leadership, new training to change not only the face of battle, but in fact the very nature of the international system. Now, how did I get interested in this topic? And I guess more importantly from your perspective, why should you be interested in it? The answer is the same, which is that we are going through a revolution in military affairs right now. The information revolution, which is something that became evident to most people, I think, around 1991 in the Gulf War, where we first saw unveiled a lot of these amazing technologies that had been pioneered by the United States in decades past. Technologies such as the first use of GPS devices to allow the famous left hook through the sands of Iraq to take place. Technologies like J-STARS and AWACS and stealth fighters in many ways, the most amazing technology of all was precision-guided munitions, smart bombs. Now, this is something we take for granted these days, but you have to put it into perspective and long-term perspective and realize that going back half a millennium to the dawn of the gunpowder age, once a bullet or, or a shell or any other kind of projectile left a gun barrel or a bomb bay, it was pretty much on its own. It was subject to the laws of gravity, and it was therefore not terribly accurate. You didn't know where it was going to land. In World War II, when my wife's grandfather was flying B-17s over Europe, they were lucky if they got a bomb within half a mile of the target. So if you wanted to take out a, a target, let's say a German war plant, you had to send 1,000 B-17s with 10,000 crewmen, and you'd probably lose a lot of them, and you still wouldn't take out the target, and instead you'd wind up destroying an entire neighborhood around it because bombs were so inaccurate. Well, by 1991, one airplane, one pilot, one bomb could achieve the same results that it had taken a 1,000 aircraft to achieve in World War II. Now, that's what I call a revolution in military affairs. And, of course, progress has not stopped, did not stop in 1991. It's kept on going. So nowadays, it's routine for commanders in places like Tampa or Washington to sit in a war room and watch on a video feed live images from a Predator drone flying over Afghanistan or Iraq, which in turn is being piloted by guys sitting in a trailer at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. 
This is this worldwide network of sensors and systems which the U.S. military has pioneered, which is at the very heart of this information revolution. So what I argue in the book is, yes, a revolution in military affairs has happened, but it hasn't necessarily worked out the way a lot of its advocates intended or wanted it to. It hasn't all accrued to the advantage of the United States. What I really try to do in the book is to present the current problems we face and the current dilemmas we face with this revolution in military affairs in very broad historical perspective by looking at four revolutions in military affairs over the course of the last 500 years, beginning with the gunpowder revolution, which began to transform warfare around 1500 or so, then the first industrial revolution, whose full impact was felt between 1850 and 1914, between the Crimean War and World War I. Then the second industrial revolution, driven by the internal combustion engine, airplanes, radios, all those technologies, whose full impact was felt in World War II. And now the information revolution, driven by advances in microchip technology since the 1960s. Now this is obviously a very broad chunk of history to bite off, 500 years. So to try to make it somewhat more digestible, I tell the story through a series of battles that serve as a microcosm of what was going on in the larger world, beginning with the French invasion of Italy in 1494 and concluding with the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And along the way, I try to show different kinds of battles, battles on land, battles at sea in the later stages, battles in the air, and battles pitting Europeans against one another as well as against non-Europeans. And when I describe these battles and when I describe these revolutions, I don't just talk about technology. I really try to focus on the soldiers and their commanders who were struggling with new weapon systems and struggling to take advantage of them better than their adversaries. I spend a lot of time talking about individuals who were grappling with these revolutions in military affairs, whether it was a Francis Drake struggling to figure out how to utilize cannons mounted on ships to defeat the Spanish Armada in 1588, or a Curtis LeMay struggling in 1944-1945 to figure out how to utilize these very long-range bombers, the B-29s, to defeat Japan. It was not technology alone that was the driver in the story. It was very much people and the way they utilized technology. Well, I try to tell a series of good stories in the book, and I've been gratified to see that some of the early reviews have noted that. But there's more here than just good stories. I think there's a lot of material which is very germane to all of us who think about the future of American power and global power. So at the end of this 500 years of history, I have a concluding chapter that tries to draw some lessons for thinking about our present dilemmas. Now, if you want the full range of lessons, you've got to plunk down your 25 bucks and turn to the back of the book and read through that. But let me give you kind of the Cliff Notes version right here, about 500 years of lessons in, what, 10, 15 minutes, something like that. So you can figure out how many years per minute that is. It's a lot. But I'll try to digest it all into a very few succinct points. First point, just how incredibly important these revolutions in military affairs have been in determining the shape of the world and really making the world as it is today. There's a tendency in academia to not focus on the importance of military skill as a driving force in history. There's a tendency to focus on other factors, whether demographics or germs or economics or sexual roles or so many other things, all of which have validity. I'm not denying that all of these are important, but we can't lose sight of the obvious, which is just how incredibly important skill at harnessing these revolutions in military affairs has been. It's not enough to be big and powerful 
to prevail militarily. In fact, one of the surprising things for me in looking at this history was how often the poorer, smaller power defeated the bigger, richer power, beginning with the Spanish Armada in 1588, when Spain was much bigger and richer than England was. England didn't have its colonies yet. But the Spanish nevertheless lost to the Royal Navy because the Royal Navy had mastered the tactics of sail and shot in a way that the Spanish had not. And of course, more recently in our own day, we've had some examples, unfortunately ourselves, of a bigger, larger nation being defeated by a smaller rival. Look at Vietnam. Look at Iraq. Economic power is not destiny. Otherwise, there's no way to explain how North Vietnam could possibly defeat the United States of America. So when you look at history, what you see is the crucial role of, of military skill, and skill especially, as I say, in harnessing these revolutions in military affairs, beginning with the very first one, the gunpowder revolution. Now, I begin my narrative around 1500 or so, when gunpowder was first beginning to make a major impact on warfare. If you go back a few years before that, around 1400 or so, and you ask yourself, who was the most powerful military force on the planet? It was not the Europeans. It was the Chinese or the Mongols. Those were the superpowers of circa 1400. In 1450, Europeans controlled 14% of the world's land surface. 14%, not terribly significant. They were also rands in the struggle for military power. Yet by 1914, Europeans controlled 84% of the world's land surface, from 14% to 84%. Now, just think about that for a second. In many ways, that's the big story of the last 500 years, the rise of the West. And how is that possible? How did the West rise to this position of preeminence throughout the world by the turn of the 20th century? Well, if you'd asked the 19th century European, he probably would have told you that it was because Europeans were destined to rule and they were a superior race and this is what God intended and so forth and so on, all of which just seems in retrospect to be absurd, ridiculous, hogwash. Seen in perspective, what we see is that Europeans just happen to be more successful in harnessing certain periods of military technology than other countries, than other cultures were. And they were able to use their mastery of the gunpowder revolution and the first industrial revolution to go everywhere around the world and to conquer pretty much everybody they met. They were more successful, ironically, than even the Chinese who were the ones who invented gunpowder, but for various cultural reasons, China was not as adept to taking advantage of the potential of gunpowder warfare as the Europeans were. And so the Europeans colonized the entire world. But within Europe, not every country was equally successful. The, some of the early movers, some of those who jumped out to an early edge, such as Spain and Portugal, did very well at first. But by the mid-18th century, by the time the Industrial Revolution was starting, they were also rands. They had fallen far behind. And we saw the emergence of this tier of northern European great powers. Britain, France, Prussia, Austria, Russia. These were the superpowers of the world by the mid-18th century because of their mastery of warfare, essentially, in that day and age. Then the Industrial Revolution comes along, and certain countries are able to industrialize successfully, and others are not. And those who are not pay a catastrophic price on the battlefield. You're listening to historian Max Boot. This is Zocalo. Join Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series as we kick off our 2007 season. On Tuesday, January 9th at 7 p.m., Zocalo presents Jim Newton on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. 
The work of Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren and the Warren Court is widely known and fiercely debated for its impact on far-flung fields such as racial equality, privacy, police procedure, and voting rights. Jim Newton is the Los Angeles Times City-County Bureau Chief and author of the new book on Earl Warren. This event at the Los Angeles Central Library is free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to historian Max Boot. By the end of the First World War, the major war, the First Industrial Revolution, we see the collapse of major dynasties, Ottomans, Romanovs, Habsburgs, who were all very successful in the gunpowder age, but not terribly successful in the industrial age. They couldn't keep up, and the demands of industrialized warfare overloaded their rickety governmental systems, and they collapsed. And while they collapsed, you saw the rise of two new superpowers, Germany and Japan, who were particularly adept at waging war in the industrial age. Then the Second World War comes along, the Second Industrial Age, and we see another major turn of the tide with all of the great powers of the past, whether it was the vanquished, Germany, Italy, and Japan, or the victors, Britain and France, all of them are consigned to the sideline. And you see the emergence of two new superpowers of the Second Industrial Age. Well, jump ahead a few decades, and you come to the 1980s and early 1990s. One of those superpowers collapses. Why? Well, there are obviously a lot of reasons why the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, you could stand up here and talk about that for hours. But I think a lot of the story had to do with one simple fact. We had a Silicon Valley, and they didn't. We were much more adept at harnessing computer technology for our economy and for our military. And this was something the Soviets realized. They saw what was happening in the early 1980s. They realized they were falling further and further behind the United States. They had to make changes in order to keep up. That's what Gorbachev was trying to do. It didn't work. He tried to reform the system, and instead it collapsed. And I would argue that information technology or the development of information technology by the United States played a significant role in the collapse of the other superpower. So by the mid-1990s, here we were, standing alone atop the world with this unrivaled power, our major rival having collapsed Our military having shown its prowess in the Gulf War, we were left as the hegemon of the international system. But of course, as we've discovered in the years since then, hegemony isn't all it's cracked up to be. Being the big kid on the block has its problems. It's not so easy to be number one. I will come to that in a minute, but first let me just ask this question. How do you become number one? How do you become one of the victors in this struggle for global primacy? How do you avoid becoming one of the vanquished. Now, because I've been talking about the importance of information technology, of weapon systems, you might think the answer I would give you is you have to develop some really amazing weapon systems. In fact, that's very seldom been the answer for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that it's very hard to control creativity, and in fact, most of the important inventions which have transformed warfare over the course of the last 500 years have not been military inventions. They have not come from any army. They have not come from any defense department. They have not come from any government R&D lab. They have very often come from left field, starting with gunpowder, which was invented in China. Nobody knows who invented it or why, 
it just arose and then migrated and made its way westward. Or three-masted sailing ships. Again, nobody knows who invented them, but they proved tremendously important. Or the steam engine, the railroad, the steamboat, the telegraph, the internal combustion engine, the automobile, the airplane, the radio, the microchip. These are some of the most important military inventions of the last 500 years, but they weren't military at all. The Wright brothers weren't thinking, let's come up with a way to kill millions of people. They were thinking it would be cool to fly. But out of that basic impulse, it would be cool to fly, they came up with a weapon system that, in fact, killed millions of people. That's how creativity works. It's very hard to have these kinds of huge breakthroughs occur on command. You can't say, go out and make a weapon system that will completely transform warfare any more than you can say, you know, write me a great novel by 5 o'clock or compose a great symphony. These are things that just happen. It's very hard to create that kind of breakthrough invention on demand. And even if you do invent it, even if you are successful, and there have been instances where countries have been successful, it's very rare to hold on to the fruits of your work for very long. The great example, of course, being one of the most successful government-directed R&D projects of all time, the Manhattan Project. We spend billions of dollars to develop the atomic bomb, and boom, and I do mean boom, uh, within, within four years, the Soviets have the exact same thing. I mean, this happens all the time. We're seeing it happen now. 10, 15 years ago, what were some of the most closely held secrets in the U.S. government? Satellite reconnaissance imagery. We spent billions of dollars to develop this stuff going back to the late 1950s. It was classified up the wazoo. Well, now anybody can go to Google and get satellite reconnaissance imagery. It's out there for anybody to see. This is part of a pattern. Technology, if it's successful, disseminates very, very quickly. It's very hard to hold successful technology in secret. It gets out there, as satellite imagery has, as night vision goggles have, as GPS devices have, have, have so many of these inventions made by the United States over the course of the last few decades. So if you're not going to get an advantage from inventing this amazing weapon system and holding onto it yourself, how do you get an advantage? How do you win this struggle for primacy? Well, I would submit to you that the answer, or at least the answer that I found in, in my research, is perhaps not so surprising and certainly not very sexy, almost boring. But the answer is organization, bureaucracy, management. It's how you run things. It's what kind of structure you have to take advantage of inventions that are available to anybody. The question is, who can take advantage of them better? Who has the right kind of structure and planning and doctrine to harness commonly available weapon systems? The classic example being one of the most famous revolutions in military affairs, the Blitzkrieg in 1940. Now, the Germans didn't invent the tank. It was a British invention. In 1940, they didn't even have more tanks or better tanks than the Allies. In fact, if you looked strictly on the basis of equipment, the Allies were superior. The French actually had better tanks than the Germans. So why was the outcome of the Battle of France so one-sided? If there was any technological advantage that the Germans had, it was simply the fact that they placed two-way radios in most of their tanks and airplanes, and the British and the French did not. But again, the radio was not a German invention. It was invented by Marconi, an Anglo-Italian. Everybody in the world had radios in 1940. But only the Germans figured out that placing these two-way radios into their tanks and airplanes would be incredibly important because only the Germans planned to fight this fast-moving war of maneuver where being able to command and control your forces in the field 
would be incredibly important. The Allies were still locked into this static trench warfare mindset of World War I. So the real German advantage was not the kind of equipment they had, but the use they made of it. The real German advantage was that they were able to outthink their adversaries, and as a result, were able to outfight them, at least initially in World War II. If you want to look at what was the German secret weapon, it wasn't the Panzer, the Stuka, or anything else. In many ways, it was the German general staff, which was a very effective instrument of planning military operations. They pioneered, in fact, many of the techniques of military planning, which are now commonplace in every army around the world. You're listening to military historian and L.A. Times columnist Max Boot. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo Radio is available as a podcast. To sign up for a podcast subscription, go to our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Click on Zocalo Radio and hit the podcast button. In a moment, we return to how revolutions in military affairs shape history with Max Boot. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Many people with private health insurance don't discover this problem until it's too late. Many families that have mental illness strike their family quickly find out that they only had 10 inpatient days for the entire lifetime of that individual enrolled person, and they would exhaust that coverage very, very quickly. That's an issue Congress has considered for 15 years, the politics of mental health care, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Monday morning at 10, it's Air Talk here on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle inviting you to join me as one of our topics is a look at Arab Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. How wide-reaching is it? How does it play out in Middle Eastern politics, perhaps even here in the United States, given concerns about anti-Semitism in America? That's Air Talk Monday morning here on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to military historian Max Boot, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. From 1850 to the 1940s, the German general staff was tremendously successful at taking new inventions, whether it was the railroad and the telegraph or the tank and the radio and the airplane, and harnessing them into a war plan much better than their adversaries although on several occasions their adversaries did a pretty good job of catching up. That's another story. But they were certainly very effective before these wars in taking advantage of these inventions, much more so than their enemies were. This is an example, one of many, of a sort of organizational model that was very well adapted to the needs of the time. In each of the periods of revolutionary change that I write about had a different organizational model associated with it, beginning with the gunpowder revolution, which led to the rise of the first nation states, led in most cases by absolute monarchies. This turned out to be the optimal organizational structure for the gunpowder age because these absolute monarchs could mobilize thousands of young peasants, put them in uniforms, and send them marching into the flintlocks of the enemy. They could do this much more effectively than could the feudal lords of the Middle Ages, who just didn't have the resources to compete on a gunpowder battlefield. Then we come to the Two industrial revolutions, which led to the rise of these giant welfare and warfare states. 
these vast bureaucratic entities that were able to harness the full resources of an industrialized society and send millions of men into battle, get millions of men and millions of civilians killed, but at the same time had the resources to pay pensions to those who survived. Well, for almost 500 years, going back to the very dawn of the gunpowder age, the trend has been towards bigness, towards bigger and bigger and more sophisticated bureaucratic entities from the rise of the first nation states in the 16th century up through the vast bureaucratic entities of the Soviet Union and the American government in the post-World War II era. But things have been going in reverse over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. The information revolution does not lead to centralization. It leads to decentralization. It's putting more power into the hands of more individuals by freeing information from these very rigid hierarchies. We no longer have to get all of our news from three evening newscasts at 6.30. We can get our news all the time, anytime we want, simply by going to the Internet. Same thing with stock quotes. We no longer have to rely upon a stockbroker to tell us what a stock is worth. You can find that information out anytime. There have been these vast changes which have occurred through every sphere of life over the course of the last 20 or so years. And certain organizations have been well adapted to those changes, and other organizations have not been. In business, you've seen this winnowing out process where some companies who are extremely successful in the industrial age, very well set up for competition in the industrial age, have not been so successful in the information age. Companies like GM or Ford or U.S. Steel or so many others, these behemoths that have not been able to, quote-unquote, re-engineer themselves for the information age. And we've seen the rise of new corporations with different organizational models, companies like Toyota, Walmart, Dell, eBay, Microsoft, so many others. And by and large, most of their competitive advantage does not come from their technology. It comes from their organization, the way they're able to harness technology more effectively than their competitors. Well, exactly the same thing happens in the realm of international security affairs. And unfortunately, when I look at what's happening today, I have to conclude that in many ways, our enemies are being more successful than we are in taking advantage of the very technology that we ourselves invented. I mean, look at the organizational matchup here. In many ways, the U.S. government is kind of the GM or Ford of governments, this old industrial hierarchy that functioned very well in the Cold War and World War II, but doesn't function so well today. And look at our adversaries. They don't have this giant bureaucracy. They're extremely lean. They're decentralized. They're very quick to adapt to changes. Al-Qaeda does not have this, the same kind of bureaucratic structure that the U.S. government has. I mean, I was making this point a few weeks ago at the Naval Academy, and an officer there said to me, well, you know, sir, what's the big advantage that Al-Qaeda has over the American Armed Forces? It's that they don't need travel orders when they go outside their AOR, their area of responsibility. That's kind of a microcosm of the differences here. I mean, on one level, it's humorous, but on another level, this is deadly serious stuff. Just let me offer you one example of this. IEDs, improvised explosive devices, the number one killer of American troops in Iraq over the course of the last three and a half years. By and large, this is not terribly sophisticated technology. In the early days especially, it was nothing more than an artillery shell wired up with a garage door opener or a cell phone. This is nothing that we would spend billions of dollars to acquire as a weapon system for the American military. But if it's so stupid, if it's so simple, and it is stupid and simple, why can't we defeat it? We've thrown billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars, at the problem of defeating IEDs. 
thousands of man hours. Some of our best scientists, some of our best military minds have been working on this problem for three and a half years. And what is the end result of that? Well, they have fielded some effective technology. I mean, if you go to Iraq and ride around in a Humvee these days, more likely than not, the Humvee will be equipped with something called a warlock, which is a jamming device developed in the Pentagon to jam certain ID frequencies. These things work. In fact, they work so effectively that they also jam American radios. But they do work. And yet, what's been the larger impact? If you look at IED casualties, there's been no appreciable decline, no matter what we've done. And why is that? It's because when we deploy something like the Warlock, what do our enemies do? Do they say, oh, okay, you got us. We give up. You win. You're too smart for us. That's, unfortunately, I wish that were the response, but it's not. The response is more like, well, okay, you're taking away one way we can kill you, but we're going to come up with another way. And they do. So if you can't set off IEDs on certain frequencies, they'll find other frequencies, or they'll use pressure plates, or they'll use tripwires. There's a thousand different ways to set off bombs, and unfortunately, these guys are finding all of them. And they're finding new ways to kill us faster than we're finding ways to defend ourselves. And I would argue a lot of the reason for that is that they're not encumbered with all this bureaucracy that we have. I mean, when we have to come up with a new way to defend against IEDs, we have to get an appropriation from Congress. You have to go through the procurement bureaucracy. You have to get sign-offs from 20 layers of command. And even if you're doing this at the fastest, most expedited pace, it's still going to take many months to field a new system. Our enemy doesn't have any of that. They just go out and do it. It's a process of trial and error. If they fail, they die. Very simple. If they succeed, Americans die, and they replicate that, and they copy that all around the country, and they see what works. And so by the time we get a fix on one technique that they're using, they're on to something else. In military parlance, they're inside our decision cycle. We're not reacting as quickly as they are. And I would argue a lot of that has to do with organization. I mean, we have tremendous men and women in the American military, bright, dedicated, extremely hardworking, but they're tied down by the structure in which they operate, which is not very effective for the kind of warfare that we face. And this is a major, major issue. This is something that goes well beyond Iraq. I mean, I know everybody's debating now what's going to happen in Iraq, and that's an important debate. We've got to look out beyond Iraq, because in some ways Iraq is a relatively low-level example of the kind of threats that we will confront in the future. Because after all, in Iraq, the weapons we're facing tend to be bombs, uh, rocket-propelled grenades, AK-47s, fairly basic technology that really dates back more than half a century. But it's not outside the realm of possibility that terrorists will get their hands on much more potent weapons, as we see with the proliferation of nuclear weapons or biotechnology. All these basic scientific concepts are very well understood all over the world because we've been so successful in promulgating Western science and technology all over the world. And that's, in fact, I would argue, the biggest difference between the kind of war we face today and previous insurgencies. I mean, there's nothing new about guerrillas. There's nothing new about terrorists driven by religious fundamentalism. Both of those are as old as recorded history. And obviously, Western powers have been involved in guerrilla warfares going back many, many years. But there's something different about the kind of enemies that we face today because they are so much more potent than previous generations of guerrillas. You're listening to historian Max Boot. This is Zocalo. Join Zocalo as we kick off our 2007 season. On Tuesday, January 9th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents Jim Newton on Earl Warren and the Californiization of America. And on Tuesday, January 22nd at 7 p.m., Zocalo and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages present 
Tuning in the broadband channel, how the Internet is remaking the TV business, a panel moderated by John Healy of the Los Angeles Times editorial page. As always, Zocalo events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Max Boot. In one of the battles that I write about in my book was the Battle of Omdurman in 1898 in the Sudan, when the British were facing an enemy that in many ways had a lot of ideological similarities with the kind of enemies that we face today. Because there was a jihadist uprising in the Sudan in the 1880s and 1890s, led by a self-proclaimed messiah who wanted to go on a jihad against the infidels. And he did manage to chase the British out of Sudan for a number of years. But then the British returned, led by General Kitchener, and including a young lieutenant named Winston Churchill. They invaded the Sudan and eventually destroyed the Sudanese dervishes at the Battle of Omdurman when the, when the dervishes were obliging enough to charge across open ground with their rusty muskets and, and spears and, and swords against the British repeating rifles and machine guns. It was not a close call. Who won? It was a slaughter. But things were very different in the 1890s than they are today. In the 1890s, the British did not have to worry about Sudanese jihadists coming to London to kill British people in the UK because the Sudan was so cut off from the rest of the world. That was an impossibility. And the amount of firepower at the disposal of these enemies was minimal compared to what the Europeans had. All that has changed. Today, our enemies can operate all over the world thanks to our own technology. Jumbo jets and the Internet and cell phones and satellite TV and all the rest of them have made this the first global insurgency, an insurgency not confined to one region, not confined to one country, but able to be waged around the world. This is the dark side of globalization. We have been very successful in knitting the world closer together. This has been a great boon for American companies. It has also been, unfortunately, a great boon for our enemies. They are taking advantage of the same technologies that we do, and they're being pretty effective at it, and they're getting more effective at it because, as I mentioned before, of the growing destructive power that they have at their fingertips. It's not inconceivable that today you could have a small group of individuals, one terrorist cell, that would have far more destructive capacity at its fingertips than an entire army could a century ago. That's the threat that we have to face. We can't just simply say, well, these guys are no big deal. We don't face any major great power rivals, so we're going to stay on top. It's not that simple. I mean, we have to remember that the Roman Empire was not brought down by another superpower. It was brought down by the barbarians, essentially folks who practiced irregular warfare and nevertheless managed to defeat the Roman legions. I'm not arguing that's going to happen tomorrow, but we need to think about those kinds of threats and not simply dismiss them as kind of low-end ankle-biting type of threats, as so many in the military do. These guys are not just ankle-biters. They're liable to take off your whole ankle and your leg and your torso, too. They are becoming an existential threat, and we have to think about how do we deal with this? This is, in many ways, the biggest challenge going forward for the next Secretary of Defense. This is what Bob Gates is going to have to spend his time on. This is what the next administration is going to have to spend their time on. They have to think about these issues. This is something that, obviously, the current administration has thought about as well. Don Rumsfeld thought about, and I'm not sure that he thought about it in the right way. Because what I think the Rumsfeld approach was to focus very much on technology and what technology can do for us. But unfortunately, what we're seeing in Iraq and Afghanistan is the limitations of technology. Technology is very good for certain things. It's very good for high-end conventional war. We don't need that many troops anymore to defeat 
an organization like the Republican Guard. We can do that with very few troops because we have all this amazing firepower that we, we can pour out from all these weapon systems. But, of course, the difficulty becomes that you can get to Baghdad with 120,000 troops, but can you hold a country of 26 million people with 140,000 troops, especially when you've disbanded their own army? That's much harder to do. We've never had enough boots on the ground in Iraq. We've never had the right kind of boots on the ground. That's a huge difficulty. We haven't had enough people who understand the local culture, the local language, who understand counterintelligence, counterinsurgency, human intelligence, state building, interrogation, military policing, all these disciplines which have been in such short supply in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. That's what we need to win this kind of war. There's a limitation to what technology can do for you. I mean, it's very impressive and useful in many ways that we now have this capacity with smart bombs to put a bomb on any target in the world with a great deal of accuracy. That's a very useful skill to have. The problem we face is we can blow up any target, but we don't know which targets to blow up. That's the essence of the paradox of the dilemma that we face in the information age. Our enemies are not presenting obvious targets for us, and they're stymieing some of our most expensive high technology with simple expedients like not talking on cell phones, communicating with couriers. That destroys a lot of our technological surveillance advantage. So what do we do about it? Obviously, we got to keep those smart bombs. They're useful, but we need smart people. We need smart people who understand our enemies and can get inside their minds and break up their plots before they occur. That's what we're missing. And I would argue it's not because it's impossible to get those kind of people, to train and recruit those kind of people. I would argue it's because we don't have the right organizational structure to do that at the moment. I mean, I was struck a few weeks ago by a report in another newspaper that shall go nameless, not the LA Times, I'm afraid, although it may have been reported in the LA Times as well, that five years after 9-11, the FBI still has, out of 12,000 special agents, only 33 who speak Arabic. And most of them actually don't speak Arabic that well, but 33 who know any degree of Arabic five years after 9-11. Now, that's staggering in some ways, and you have to ask yourself, how is that possible? Is that because FBI agents are incapable of learning foreign languages? Is it because the FBI is incapable of recruiting in Dearborn, Michigan, and getting Arab-American agents on the force? I would argue, no, it's not because those things are impossible. It's because those things are not rewarded within the culture of the FBI. That's not what they select and train for. That's not what they view as being important to the task of being a successful FBI agent. And the same thing is true in the military. I mean, people talk about the need to learn languages, but believe me, you're going to get a lot farther in a military career if you're a good combat leader of American troops than if you're somebody who spends all your time hanging out in Kazakhstan and learning the local culture. But in fact, when going forward, we actually need more people who understand what's going on in places like Kazakhstan. We have lots of great combat leaders. That's not the issue. The problem is understanding our enemies. That's where we're deficient. And we need to think about organizational reform that will accomplish those goals. Now, I don't have a 10-point plan here to present to you for what we should do. I'm sorry. I know there's deep disappointment. I'm sure that I don't want to take away all of Bob Gates's work. I want him to have something to do when he, when he gets into office. I don't have a blueprint here. What I've tried to do in the book is not present a blueprint for reform, but to present a work of history and analysis that looks at the challenges that we face in long-term historical perspective. And what I hope to do, really, is to spark a debate, a conversation about these very pressing issues and how we address them, because I don't have the answers. I hope that other people do. 
And a small part of that conversation and dialogue, I hope, will occur right now. Thank you very much. You're listening to historian and L.A. Times columnist Max Boot. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. 2006 was a busy year for Zocalo Radio. Click on Zocalo's website to hear past radio guests such as historian Nathaniel Philbrick, L.A. Dodgers president Jamie McCourt, writer Caitlin Flanagan, theater maverick Heather Woodbury, and many more. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, the audience asks questions of Max Boot. Stay tuned to Zocalo. KPCC consistently enriches your life by bringing you the reliable, in-depth news and information you've come to expect. And we're asking you to make supporting KPCC one of your 2007 New Year's resolutions. Contribute online at kpcc.org and ensure this service keeps going strong all year round. Happy New Year from all of us at 89.3 KPCC. I'm Pat Morrison. Maybe it's sympathetic medicine. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor with a fractured femur, is announcing how he plans to mend California's fractured health care system. Six and a half million Californians working, studying, living without any health insurance at all, a lot of them children. Because they're uninsured, any health care they do get comes out of all our pockets, maybe $1,100 per Californian. What's a governor to do? Find out beginning at 1 p.m. tomorrow on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this final segment, the Zocalo audience gets its chance to ask questions of historian Max Boot. You had alluded to some prior examples where the U.S. had not succeeded, and Vietnam would be a good case, where we had clearly superior technology. We also had a vast difference in our bureaucracy or control structure, But you didn't mention a third factor where I think there was a difference, and that was our willingness to make or take full advantage of the technological difference. So how do you view or how do you factor in the willingness to use the technology or in another frame of reference, the willingness to be as brutal as you choose to be? I mean, there's no doubt about it that the will of our enemies has proven greater than our will in Vietnam, and I'm afraid it's proven greater than our will today in Iraq. And that's obviously a huge part of the story of the outcome of any battle. But I think you have to put that into some perspective because you can have all the will in the world. And if you're not effective at fighting, it doesn't make any difference. The Sudanese dervishes, they had incredible will. They were just as fanatical, just as suicidal as the terrorists we face in Iraq today. They were much more willing to give up their own lives than the British soldiers they faced were. But the British didn't have to give up their lives because the Sudanese dervishes fought in a very foolish manner in the 1890s. They fought in a way that played to the British strengths. They simply charged across open ground, and boom, they all got mown down. So their will didn't matter in the end when compared to the British firepower. And the same thing was true in previous examples where we faced fanatical and determined enemies, such as the Japanese kamikazes. Again, it didn't make that much difference, although it did kill a number of Americans. But ultimately, the Japanese were fighting in a way that we could understand and we could master. And it was conventional warfare, 
And so ultimately, we used our greater resources and our greater mastery of bombers and other technologies to just simply pulverize the Japanese. Now, you're right that today we're not willing to pulverize our enemies in the way that we did in World War II. But World War II was really the exception, not the norm. I mean, there are very few wars where we were willing to level the enemy territory. And in fact, very few wars were were willing to do half as much as we did in World War II. That was kind of an exception. This is much more the norm, the kind of low-intensity conflict that we face today in Iraq or Afghanistan or have faced in the past and in so many other countries. And there's no question that there's a battle of will here, and our will can be broken, but our enemies know that, of course, and they manipulate that very expertly. In fact, this is, and when you look at what is the American center of gravity, it's very much our will, and our enemies have targeted that very effectively. I mean, this is, again, another aspect of modern war where they realize that they don't have to beat us militarily. They don't have to defeat us on the ground, just as the North Vietnamese didn't have to defeat us on the ground. All they have to do is break our will to fight. And if they're skillful enough, they can do that even as they're sustaining so-called military defeats. I mean, that's what we saw in, in Vietnam, where there was that famous exchange that occurred after the war between an American colonel and a North Vietnamese colonel, and the Americans said, you know, you never beat us. And the North Vietnamese colonel said, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you can win militarily and use all this firepower to achieve tactical victories if you're suffering a strategic defeat, which in many ways is the problem we face today in Iraq as well. We've won every battle in Iraq. Nobody's defeated the U.S. military on the ground in Iraq, but we're like this far away from leaving because they have managed to break our will very skillfully through essentially waging information age warfare targeted where the objective is not so much to wipe out the United States or to wipe out our troops, but to kill enough troops to sap our will and to create enough images, horrific images for the television screens, that that will sap our will. So yes, this is a war of wills, and the other side has greater will, but I would argue that they are also much more skilled at sapping our will than we are skilled at sapping theirs. I mean, this has not happened by accident. There is skill involved here, and the enemies that we face are much more skilled at information war, the propaganda battle, whatever you want to call it. They're beating us through those very techniques. So, yeah, I mean, there is a disparity here, no question about it. Weeks ago at this forum, Neil Ferguson was talking about empire and the U.S. as the successor empire of the British Empire. And in his analysis, the U.S. not only doesn't have the stomach for this kind of operation in Iraq, but just it's just simply not in the DNA of this country to engage in this sort of adventure of empire. And I was wondering what uh, your response to that might be. Well, I think that in many ways, Niels Ferguson is being proven in Iraq today. I would just say that I don't think it's inevitable that things had to work out as they did. I mean, we have certainly fought low-intensity conflicts before, small wars. I chronicled a lot of those in my previous book, and a lot of those turned out much more successfully than, than our recent experience in Iraq. In the Philippines, for example, at the turn of the 20th century, where we did defeat a very entrenched insurgency. Now, of course, you can argue that conditions have changed over the course of the last hundred years, and of course, there's been a vast changes, especially in the growth of this media culture, which shines a microscope on anything that U.S. troops do on the battlefield and really changes the conditions under which they operate. It's clear that we don't have the stomach for the kind of conflict that we are being forced to wage in Iraq. Now, I don't think that the conflict had to turn out this way. I mean, I think it was possible. If you read books like Tom Ricks's Fiasco and others, I think there's a good case to be made that these are kind of self-inflicted wounds and that if we had managed things a little bit better in Iraq in 2003, we would not have come to this pass. 
But there is no question that we have this vulnerability to the suicide bomber, to the IED, to the slow bleeding out of the American troops abroad, especially, and here's where I, I might disagree with Neil a little bit, I mean, this is especially the case with the American people don't see a huge stake involved in the war. I mean, I think after 9-11, when we went into Afghanistan, there was a willingness, I think, to endure quite a good deal of sacrifice to get the job done. We weren't too worried about what it would take simply because there was such a clear present national threat. It's very hard to sustain that well in the case of Iraq when the primary rationale for the war didn't materialize after we got there. I wouldn't say it's impossible to sustain that well, but I think it is very, very difficult. And this could be a huge problem for us going forward. Not that we need to necessarily fight a lot of these wars, but that we need to stay very strongly engaged in the world in part so as to avoid fighting these kinds of wars, so as to prevent these kinds of wars from recurring in the first place. We need to be engaged very proactively in dealing with issues of failed states and, and rogue states in some of the same ways that the British did, although we don't, of course, have the luxury that they had of, of simply colonizing everything and planting the Union Jack everywhere. That's not how things operate today. Today, when we deal with failed states, we have to do it through the UN, we have to do it through the international community, we have to do it through protectorates like those that we have in Bosnia and Kosovo. But I mean, I think there's great value in that kind of work because it can prevent some of these potentially very dangerous scenarios from spiraling out of control. The classic example being Afghanistan. I mean, wouldn't it have been great if we'd gotten involved in Afghanistan in the 1990s when they were having this horrible civil war and the rise of the Taliban? If we had gotten more effectively involved in the 1990s in setting up a stable, reasonably representative government in Afghanistan, we might have avoided 9-11. So in the future, I think it's vitally important for us to stay engaged, not with hundreds of thousands of troops, but in kind of a, a low-intensity way, using not only troops, but all the instruments of our power, whether diplomacy or economic aid or public diplomacy or what have you. We have to have that kind of commitment. And if we can't sustain even that kind of commitment, I mean, if Neil is saying that we can't even sustain that kind of commitment, then I think we're going to be in deep, deep trouble because I think a lot of these trouble spots will spiral out of control and we're going to pay a huge price and we're going to be fighting more wars, not fewer. There's a strong case to be made for these kinds of low-intensity interventions, which they're not terribly popular, whether it's being done by the Clinton administration or now by the Bush administration, but I think whatever the partisan rhetoric, I think eventually both parties see there's a need for these kinds of actions and there's a need for them even now, even as we're bogged down in in Iraq and places like Darfur cry out for action. Uh, you've referenced the enemy in Iraq several times, Mr. Boot, and that uh, they have the ability to sap our will more than we have the ability to sap their will. Who exactly, in your opinion, is the enemy in Iraq? Well, there's a lot of enemies in Iraq. and uh, you, did mention, you did mention terrorists at one point. There are a lot of terrorists in Iraq, and, and their primary victims are the Iraqi people. What we've actually had is a change in the nature of the war in Iraq, and one of the problems we've faced, one of the consequences of our organization not adapting very quickly and our political leaders not adapting very quickly is we have not adapted to the changing nature of the conflict. In 2003, early 2003, in the spring 2003, we faced a very conventional war against Saddam Hussein, the Ba'athist Party, and their armed forces, the Republican Guard and regular army. And we were very successful in that war, but we were not very prepared for the outcome in part for organizational reasons, because we just didn't have anybody in the government who spent their time thinking about how to reconstruct war-torn countries and what happens after we win a military victory, how to consolidate the fruits of military success in the way that we did in Europe after World War II with the Marshall Plan and other instruments to bring about a better peace. So we won the initial military campaign, then we started losing the peace, and that very quickly transformed itself 
into an insurgency waged largely among the Sunnis, among secular Ba'athists and jihadist Sunnis against the United States and our uh, allies, perceived allies in the Shiite community. And that's the war that we faced from mid-2003 to early 2006. And it took us a couple of years of stumbling around. And finally, by, I would say, by mid-2005, late 2005, we were starting to adapt to this conflict that we were facing. We were starting to make the changes necessary to fight a classic counterinsurgency and not try to apply a conventional military mindset to a very unconventional problem. And then the battlefield changed again in a very dramatic way with the bombing of the mosque in Samara in February of 2000 of this year. I mean, I was actually in Iraq at that point, and I had no idea this would turn out to be as important as it turned out to be, but it has been. This is really the turning point where the conflict went from being simply a war of Sunni terrorists against Shiites and Kurds and American troops. Now it's become a low-grade civil war pitting Shiite militias against one another and against various Sunni militias with the Kurds kind of playing a role and American troops being caught in the middle. And we're getting hit from both sides now. We're, we're having to face both Shia and Sunni. So the nature of the enemy has changed. What hasn't changed, unfortunately, is the horrible cruelty and viciousness with which they fight, whether it's the Sunnis driving car bombs into crowds of peaceful Shiite worshipers or into crowded marketplaces and killing hundreds of men, women, or children, or whether it's the Shiite militiamen uh, taking Sunni victims and drilling them full of holes, quite literally. I mean, this has become a horrifying conflict with violence spiraling out of control, and unfortunately, we're not able to control it. So that one of, one of the problems, as I say, I, I think fundamentally, we have been slow to respond to the changing nature of the threat that we face, because you're absolutely right. It's, you can't just say there's one enemy. There are different enemies, and the different enemies require different approaches, and we haven't been very adept at dealing with that. Do you think that the U.S. has lessons to learn from the French experience in Algeria, since they were dealing with an equally brutal insurgency? And can you comment on that? Thank you. Well, there absolutely are lessons to learn from the French experience in Algeria, most of them negative. It's kind of a how-to manual and how a liberal democracy should not approach a counterinsurgency, because the French were actually reasonably successful militarily, but they lost the battle for hearts and minds, not so much in Algeria. They lost the battle for hearts and minds in France because they were so incredibly brutal in putting down the insurgency, uh, they were not able to keep popular support for the war effort. And eventually, President de Gaulle wound up pulling them out. The movie, The Battle of Algiers, is much watched today in the American military. People are viewing it all the time and reading books about what happened in Algeria to learn lessons, but most of those lessons, as I say, are negative about what not to do. And unfortunately, of course, some of our troops have repeated some of the same mistakes committed by the French with the brutality that we've seen in Abu Ghraib and in Haditha and some other places. This is not how you fight an insurgency. Now, I stress not how you fight an insurgency when you're a liberal democracy. A different set of rules applies if you're a dictatorship. I mean, the Russians can go into Chechnya and level everything, and they don't get much public blowback from that. Nobody really cares. If you're an absolute brutal dictatorship, or even if you're close to one, as the Russians are, you can apply a much greater degree of violence to deal with the threats that you face from guerrillas, and it doesn't matter. But liberal democracies have to play by a different set of rules. We can't simply go out and kill everybody because that would destroy the popular will to continue the warfare on the home front. It would also destroy our efforts to win hearts and minds in the country where we're fighting. So we can't approach insurgency in the way that, that dictatorships do. And unfortunately, the French didn't realize that lesson in Algeria, and they fought in the way 
that a dictatorship would, and it just wasn't successful. It couldn't be successful. You mentioned uh, human resources problems, like only 33 speakers of Arabic in the FBI and that kind of thing. How much of that is due to sort of mutually exclusive concerns, like uh, somebody from an Islamic or Middle Eastern or South Asian background would be viewed as a security risk? And since that kind of concern isn't necessarily illegitimate, how do you solve that problem? Well, you're absolutely right. We have this screwy set of rules in terms of who gets security clearances and who doesn't. And what the rules essentially mean is that if you know anything about the country that you're studying, you can't be cleared to study it. <laughs> because anybody, anybody who's a hyphenated American who has relatives living in a country of interest, as they like to say, is almost disqualified from government service because they can't be sure you're not a security risk because your grandmother living in Iran or somewhere might be blackmailed and you might be turned into an agent of the enemy, whoever the enemy is, sir. That's what our government is concerned about. And it's not a totally illegitimate or crazy concern, as you say, but the result is perverse, which is that by avoiding one security risk, which is that we will have some kind of enemy mole infiltrating our ranks, we have a much bigger security risk, which is we don't understand the enemy. We don't have people who speak the languages who understand the cultures of our enemy. I mean, theoretically, you can train, you know, kind of white bread Americans to do this kind of work, but it's very difficult to do. It takes years. You have to study the language. You have to live in the country. And we ought to be doing that. We ought to be doing much more of that, changing the personnel structure. We have to allow that to happen. But we also ought to be recruiting hyphenated Americans. We ought to be recruiting people who have roots and knowledge and, and background in the countries that we're interested in. They're a tremendous natural resource. I mean, the fact that we're a nation of immigrants, we should be harnessing those immigrants so that we are more successful in the battles that we have to wage. But unfortunately, the bureaucracy is resistant to that. The rules were set up in a different time for a different kind of enemy, and they make it very hard to do what we need to do. That's one of the major challenges that we face. And I think we have to think about things like security rules and changing them so that perhaps we introduce a little bit more threat of the mole, but we can deal with the larger risk of not understanding our target. I think those are the kinds of bureaucratic reforms that I think we urgently need to think about if we're going to be half as successful at information age warfare as our adversaries are. You've been listening to historian Max Boot. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stenzel. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.